Oh my goodness, ladies and gentlemen, what podcast, what other podcast would have the Bach organ music as the introduction and you're kind of having a way to peer around a little internecine debate? Is that music uh, playful or is it creepy? That was our behind the scenes discussion with Jamie, the producer, on the inclusion of the Bach organ music. I am Bob Bowden. This is the Learning Curve Podcast. And Kara Kandel has once again gone underground uh, to infiltrate the dark, nefarious underworld of, you know, that music, I think, fits, uh, of underworld spies at uh, clandestine black-tie private billionaire casinos in golden-plated palaces and under-mountain bunkers. That's where Kara is right now. She's in one of those places. So her cell phone isn't working, and she is... uh, (laughs) Unavailable. But the good news is we have filling in for Kara is the great Carrie McDonald, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom and, of course, a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. Carrie, thanks for being the guest co-host today. It's so great to be with you, Bob. It was great to meet you in person a couple of weeks ago at the International School Choice and Reform Conference in Florida and glad to be able to talk with you again so soon. January is a good time to get to Florida, you know, if you live many other places. And uh, and before we go on, I just wanted to ask you a little bit. So so your group, fee.org, F-E-E.org, uh, Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, well, tell us a little about the work. Yeah, so um, FEE is one of the oldest free market think tanks in the country, founded in 1946, and continues to try to make the ideas of liberty compelling and uh, and interesting and uh, accessible to the rising generation. So these ideas of limited government, prosperity through free markets and peace uh, are really important. Especially in an era when socialism seems to be gaining currency among the young, right? That's the latest thing to be is, uh, I don't know, be a Marxist or something. That's our path to economic, uh, you know, vitality, right? I think it's true, although I think if you dig into those uh, data a little bit further, you find that really uh, Gen Z and millennials care a lot about entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, And so sometimes it's just semantics, I think. And if we can focus on, you know, what does it take to encourage uh, experimentation, innovation and progress through, again, free markets, limited government choice individual freedom, um, those ideas really resonate. And I think it's just a real, really about our messaging uh, approach. Yeah. I, as, of, as is often the case with the young and sort of the older supporters of uh, 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 socialism, I, you know, I think it, my own freedom is important, but it's those other people. I need to tell them what to do because they're doing the wrong thing. I just need to order them around and then the world will be a better place, right? Because they make bad decisions and they hurt people. But me, my freedom, oh, that should be, <laughs> that should stay where it is. Uh all right. Well, I actually want to quickly say, I, I, you know, led a group led by the inspirational Larry Reed, meaning Foundation for Economic Education. And he gave a talk once on the Roman leader Cicero that, uh, you know, people might hear me say that a talk on a Roman leader named Cicero. They think, oh, my God, that sounds so tiresome or whatever or wonkish. And boy, it was compelling. Have you heard him talk about Cicero? He is such an incredible orator, um, is now, of course, um, president emeritus of FEE, uh, but still continues to go on the speaking circuit, talks about why Rome failed, um, talks about was Jesus a socialist. Uh, he just has an array of incredible speeches and I think, um, you know, is, is widely popular on college campuses across the country and around the world. Yeah, I'm a huge Larry fan. I'm, he's so cool. He's uh, he's also a kind of a 
He's he's just a great person too. If I may just uh, wax a little kind of bro crushy for a second there, I just think I think Larry's great. But anyway, let's moving on. We have stories of the day uh, with the Newswire from the Choice Media Newswire. Everybody, I, I, I will omit the my Newswire sound effect on this episode just uh, in <laughs> respect to Gary. Uh, so story number one is from Mike Antonucci's Union Report, and this story reads as follows. New year, same old decline in union membership, but the teachers' unions are still a big fish in a shrinking pond. And so this is what he writes. Mike Antonucci writes, A short jaunt through last year's headlines shows quite a few media outlets enamored with the idea of a resurgence in labor unions. Some place their faith in a Gallup poll that showed high support for organized labor, if you just ask people their opinions. Others saw the rise in union militancy with, white, with uh, walkouts and you know, red for ed strikes and, and the like. And, he, and so uh, the, he says, many people ask the question, will an age of activism and strikes lead to union growth? He writes, now we have the answer, no. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics released its annual report on union membership last Wednesday, and the news is the same as it ever was. Unions lost 170,000 members, while the U.S. economy added more than 1.6 million jobs. Only 10.3% of all salaried workers belonged to a union in 2019. And he says even that figure is optimistic since the Bureau does not include self-employed in its calculations. The Bureau estimates the number of self-employed individuals to be about 10 million. So, Kerry McDonald, uh, union membership in decline, what say you? Well, I love this graph that I think is so striking from this article that shows this falling rate of unionization since 1985. And uh, he says, he writes, if it were a stock, it would be well past time to sell. Uh, so yeah, I think it's just showing that the trend is definitely moving away from unionization um, and, uh, and toward um, sort of individuality. So to those, though, who I mean, it's pretty clear how where you and I both are on this issue personally. But to those who say that middle class wages have stagnated, that uh, income inequality has mushroomed, uh, I think I mean, I would argue there are other causes of that. But there are people that say, look, this drop in union membership has resulted in pain for the working class and middle class worker. And they say, you know, if we, when someone says that to you, how do how do you answer them? Do they say, look, can't you see, Carrie? Are you blind that middle class wages and working class wages have at best kept pace with inflation, certainly not grown? Yeah, I mean, I think there's evidence that, you know, when you look at these headlines that will say the shrinking middle class, there's actually evidence and data that show that part of that is that because more and more people are moving into the upper middle class, um, so they're actually doing better uh, overall. And so, you know, I think we have to look deeper into some of these headlines to really find out the truth. But isn't it also other issues to I me mean, to me, like globalization is a factor in terms of like how, you know, certainly automation is a factor that if you're, you know, a, um, you know, we'll call it working class American, you are competing with more people around the world than you used to. And doesn't that inherently produce a depressive effect on wages? Right. Well, and again, I would say it comes back to education, right? And that's the things that we care about and that we write about and share. It's all about finding ways to make sure that our education models are empowering individuals instead of um, kind of keeping them into this kind of factory model of standardized learning. Yeah. And it is even traditional education always that, that I, you know, you can make great money today as an, you know, 
independent and union-hating welder. You can be a, an electrician or a plumber if you're good at your job and you're honest and you show up when you say you will. You can make a lot of money. And I just saw a story today about the shortage of welders nationally. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, yeah. So, all right, let's just move on. Story number two we have from the Associated Press, datelined Ellicott City, Maryland. I'm not sure I know where Ellicott City, Maryland is. But anyway, the story says parent resistance thwarts local school desegregation efforts. As they try to address stubborn school segregation, many of the nation's school districts confront a familiar obstacle, resistance from affluent, well-organized, and mostly white parents to changes affecting children's classrooms. From New York City to Richmond, Virginia, sweeping proposals to ease inequalities have been scaled back or canceled after encountering a backlash. The debates have been charged with emotion and racist rhetoric, reminiscence of the aftermath of Brown v. Board, the U.S. Supreme Court decision that threw out state laws establishing segregated schools. So, Carrie, uh, you know this issue as well as anyone, I'd suspect. Um, and they, well, they frame it a certain way of the Associated Press coverage. What is your, what is your take on it? Well, I mean, I, I guess that's where I'm an advocate, largely, of school choice. And I think that, you know, when you ever you have a system of mass schooling um, that tries to implement policies, some people will be upset by them and other people, you know, might be supportive of them. But if you allow for individual choice and freedom, uh, you can avoid a lot of these conflicts and battles. Well, but you know what they say. They say that if you allow people choice, that means these racists will choose to keep out the minority kids, right? That that's choice. <laughs> Right. That's that's well, except that you find that it's a, a lot of, um, you know, low income families or minority families that are, are that are often the ones advocating most strongly for choice and that are, you know, pushing for their own charter schools or private schools. So that's I true. don't know that that holds water. All right. So that's it. Let's go to story number three, everybody. Story number three. Uh, now, this is one, uh, you know, normally we try not to, uh, you know, plug our own work. I try to be <laughs> humble, Carrie. Uh, whenever I can. This in is our, a good one, though. This I think good. this is. I think this is episode twenty of the Learning Curve podcast. It's the first time we've actually, you know, uh, selected a choice media story for the one of the three stories of the week. But it's a humdinger, as they would say. And this is titled "Massive Backfire." Hashtag I love public schools elicits everything but love. So I love public schools eliciting everything but love. So the way how this all started was. On uh, Monday of this week, of course, it's National School Choice Week, and on Monday of this week, there's what's called a tweet-up, where the people organizing National School Choice Week said, hey, why don't you use the hashtag School Choice Week in your tweets, and you can talk about the concept of school choice, and we'll you know, drive the algorithm on Twitter to make it trending or something. So that was the School Choice Week tweet up it's called that was scheduled for monday and it went great every basically overwhelmingly positive posts from all around so then you had another group scheduled for just two days later on wednesday this group wanted to do an alternate tweet up some might say opposing some might not called i love public schools i mean it's personally what i see this is kind of a counter tweet up but anyway it was called the I Love Public Schools Twitter hashtag that was scheduled for Wednesday. Everybody, hey, everybody, let's tweet about public schools on Wednesday. What they got was not what they were bargaining for. They basically got a whole uh, bunch of hate, a bunch of, you know, thrown at public schools. Anyone right now listening to my words can just 
well, if you're on Twitter, or even if you can just go on the web, uh, twitter.com, you can look up the hashtag, I love public schools, and the, and, and the, just people, I got to read some of these. Actually, I got to pull them up. I'm probably a little underprepared here. I'm just pulling them up right now. All right, here are some. Things like Shane tweeting, I love public schools, people you hate, useless classes you don't need, seeing people sucking mouths off in the hall, disgusting bathrooms. So that tweet, you know, liked 380 times. Here's one that was liked 6,300 times, 6,300 times. Someone called Debating Shady wrote, I love public schools and the pressure, both socially and academically, anxiety, depression, overall mental anguish it inflicts, or how they set us up for failure in the real world by hardly preparing us for anything. I love going to sleep and hoping not to wake up because of it. This a tweet is part of the I love public schools tweet up. And so, uh, Carrie, it turns out sometimes uh, the social media promotions uh, – end up creating uh, unintended consequences. I think that's right. And like you said, some of these tweets were really um, sad and upsetting, not only people reflecting on their experience in public schools when they were younger, but current students now, um, again, showing, you know, that giving families more choice and more freedom uh, is the path forward, not only for individual well-being, but for educational improvement. Yeah, you know, someone probably there was probably someone who had that idea, like one person who's like fought up the I love public schools tweet up campaign. You know, I wonder what they're thinking about this. And she, uh, I have a feeling next year there's not going to be another I love public schools tweet up campaign, you know, but it is it is interesting in this. I don't know if you remember when, uh, you know, when Bill Cosby was first accused of all of the abuse, uh, you know, sexual abuse of women, the, the Bill Cosby, you know, team tried to do a social media campaign showing how beloved Bill Cosby was. And instead he was overwhelmed with this mountain of, you know, hate and pushback and resistance. And we're not having it essentially from the Twitter, Twitterverse, which the Twitterverse of course can be toxic in its own way, but seems to me sometimes they get it right. Well, well, right. And I, and I think again, what's so nice, about the tweets, the larger tweets this week as part of National School Choice Week, um, really showcasing all of the different and growing options that families have for their children's education. So there's been some really positive and uplifting messages there. All right, folks, coming up next after the break, and I presume after some more Bach organ music, will be Susan Wise Bauer, writer, historian, educator, and author of books like The Well-Educated Mind, A A Guide to Classical Education You Never Had. That will be Susan Wise Bauer right after this break. Welcome back, everyone. We are pleased to be joined by Susan Wise Bauer, writer, historian, educator. She is the author of the ongoing narrative series, The History of the World. How about that title? Wow, that sounds like uh, something that will shame us all. Generally, her output, uh, uh, Susan Wise Bauer, is uh, is an output that makes us all feel insecure about our own efforts. uh, She's written The Well-Educated Mind, A Guide to Classical Education You Never Had, 
She wrote the history of Western science, and with her mother, she wrote The Well-Trained Mind, a guide to classical education at home. Susan Wise Bauer, thanks for being our guest on the Learning Curve podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be here. So homeschooling isn't new. Uh, you know, if no. anyone says that, you know, they, I'm sure the ghost of Abraham Lincoln would rise up uh, against them and, you know, millions of other people over time. But in modern times, I don't know many that many uh, I don't know that many homeschool parents who were themselves homeschooled. And yet you are just such a parent. So I wanted to start with that uh, from your perspective, how you view the space of homeschooling from at least two of the biggest changes I've seen, the growth in social engagement groups for homeschooled mm. kids that make it easier for those kinds of kids to have broader uh, groups of friends, and also the explosion of online curricula, which is just getting better all the time. And, and that's a huge way I think homeschooling has changed in a generation. But but what's your take? Where is uh, How has homeschooling changed and where is it now? Well, I think the technology, of course, has made a very big difference. Um, as you mentioned, just the ability to connect both parents and students with each other. I know that when I was being homeschooled, so my mother started homeschooling my older brother in 1972, I guess. Um, you know, we didn't know anybody who was doing this, and she was kind of scared to tell anybody that she was doing it. And so it was very isolating um, just by necessity, and that's simply no longer the case. Parents can look around and see so many other families, and this I think is a really big change, pursuing so many different varieties of homeschooling, um, you know, not just choosing one curriculum and sticking with it, but actually shaping an education from all of these different great resources, which of course is the second way that technology has changed homeschooling. You can get expert teachers to teach your kids subjects that you can't. Exactly. And, uh, and, and that has made it just it has made it so much more feasible for so many different kinds of families in so many different income ranges. Yeah, I think it probably was daunting for parents at some point in time to say, I can't teach biology or I can't teach, uh, you know, calculus or and, and also American history and also Shakespeare and also, you know, because I'm I don't have a, enough content knowledge in all these areas. But the online tools have changed that. Yes, it's it's much simpler to connect with expert teachers. Um, we actually have an online academy where we, three quarters of our teachers have PhDs and they are delighted to be able to teach high school from their homes. They love what they do. They love the students. It's a very traditional education. Just the delivery method has changed. Mm -hmm. And then the part about the social, comment on that if you would. Well, you know, I, I, I never feel like this is the most interesting thing about homeschooling. Um, all that homeschooling requires you to do is separate out the idea of socialization from the idea of education. They had, had not been uh, the same thing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It was really only in the late 19th and early 20th century that socialization and education got tied together primarily as a way to enculturate large numbers of immigrant children to the American way of life. So, uh, you know, socialization can take place in a classroom environment, but for generations, it happened outside the classroom. Um, you know, even without the internet, I turned out to be fairly well socialized. Um, and, you know, it's because we were in a rural community. We knew farmers. We were in a church. We knew people at church. We had music lessons. We pursued all of the other ways of, of relating to people that just didn't happen in a classroom. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of negative socialization in traditional uh, public schools, too, that people often leave out in this conversation. And I've always thought it was just bizarre in the evolution of human history to stick, you know, 30, 10 year olds all together with just one adult and being, you know, outnumbering the adult by, you know, some ratio of 20 to 30 to one. Uh, it, it seems to me like highly dysfunctional and leading to all kinds of all kinds of problems uh, in terms of. Yeah, it's a military it's a military model. So I wrote a book called Rethinking School, How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education. And one of the things I do is trace the history of the single sex classroom. And it goes back to 19th century Prussian methods of teaching students to be good little warriors. They taught them early how to get into a cohort, have a single officer that they obeyed and not question that officer. And we borrowed that from Prussia once again because it was efficient and because we were having huge numbers of students come into public education who hadn't been part of it before. So it was a strategic decision to use this model, but it's got nothing to do with socialization, which means learning how to live with other people. Uh, prattled on too long. Carrie, your witness. <laughs> Susan, yes, like you, I have four children who are homeschooled here in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a big fan of your work. And I, uh, my kids especially love your Story of the World books. And I find it fascinating because you have such wide appeal among what is increasingly a very diverse homeschooling population of now nearly 2 million homeschoolers nationwide. And I wonder if you can speak to that. What do you think it is about your books and uh that really resonates with families, even beyond families who may embrace classical education, but some of your other books that touch on these larger topics that have uh, that really resonate with so many families from all different kinds of homeschooling approaches and philosophies. Right. Well, I my my focus in the story of the world in the history of Western science generally when I'm exploring big picture ideas, which is a lot of what I do, um, I'm just uh, looking for the story. I'm looking for what's happening, and then I'm thinking about what that um, means, what it feels like, what it looks like, uh, and what's at stake for the people who are actually living through it at the time. So I think it's really a matter of if you can, if you can, to the best of your ability, put yourself back in the mindset of the people that you're writing about, it's going to resonate with your readers because they, they realize that, of course, they're hearing some of your biases because all of us have biases. But they can tell when you're making an honest effort to enter into another world and open it out to them without pushing an agenda. Uh, Susan, would you say that uh, social media is changing our brains and in particular children's brains? You know, some might say it's actually, well, at least it's better than television, which is utterly passive. Social media has requires some sort of engagement. But what are your thoughts on, on this social media era? Uh, I, I think it probably I think it probably is changing our brains, but I just don't think that there is anything that we can do to shift that. As individuals, we can absolutely um, enforce responsible social media guidelines for our own children, but we cannot avoid the fact that social media as a whole is changing the overall culture that we live in. Um, so yeah, I think it I think it is changing our world and I think it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of a world it produces. And in the way uh, though, in, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's changing in the yeah. way that people are becoming like 
attention spans are shortening. We're, we're communicating simpler ideas. We, uh, you know, want to look at videos that are quick and, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, TikTok, an exploding video platform of just extremely short videos. It's almost like, um, you know, gee, uh, you know, Twitter, uh, you know, Twitter to some is like too long. It takes too long to read compared to some of the TikTok videos. I don't know. So, so is that the way that social media is hurting us? Is it shortening our attention span? I don't think anybody knows. I mean, maybe um, you could also argue that it's making us more nimble, um, better able to handle multiple ideas simultaneously. You could argue that it's it's making it um it's making it clear how you have to hold multiple ideas in tension. I mean, look, I do world history, okay? So I've been doing world history for years, starting back with, you know, the Sumerians. And every single generation thinks that the technical innovation that came along is going to ruin culture. It just, it repeats over and over and over. The Sumerians thought it was going to happen. Um, ancient people thought it was going to happen. Medieval monks... What, what technology were the Sumerians complaining about? Like... The wheel? I don't know. What oh, was it? That, what were the- it was, oh, oh, actually, they were complaining. And with, with good good uh, reason as it happened, they were complaining about new farming methods, which they thought were going to cause an environmental catastrophe, which, in fact, it did. Um, I, I think about this, my favorite, my favorite illustration of this. Medieval monks were really unhappy about the bound book because – which was, you know, relatively new, a codex that you could open and close – because it meant that you could just jump into an argument at any point, and they said it was going to ruin people's minds because with a scroll, you had to start at the beginning of the argument and go forward, whereas with these newfangled codexes, you could jump in any place, and it was going to ruin people's ability to follow a rational argument. It's it's hard for me to get too uh, worked up about new technology when it has always been resisted, that's all. Uh, Susan, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about classical education, especially about your books, The Well-Trained Mind and The Well-Educated Mind. Sure. So uh, classical education is really another, and I always say that that what everyone who does classical education is actually doing is neoclassical education. We're all taking this very old pattern and adapting it for modern times, which you must do. Otherwise, it won't serve you in modern times. But what's really at the core of classical education is recognizing that the brain goes through three phases of development, that when children are younger, they are very receptive and they can gather information very quickly, but they aren't necessarily great at analyzing it. As they move into the middle grades, they begin to develop this capacity for critical thought. And then as they move into high school, they start to develop not only this ability, but this need to express themselves with grace and fluency. So for me, what really lies at the core of classical education is recognizing this pattern, and we call it grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and then in each stage, teaching the subjects in a way that's developmentally appropriate for where that student is. And that means not demanding that second graders tell you how they feel about something or what they think about something that they've just learned, but demanding that 11th and 12th graders do that rather than simply having them memorize and spit information back to you. And it seems like classical education is really uh, increasing in popularity. Uh, I know that Classical Conversations, which is one of the sort of networks of homeschoolers that embrace classical education, that is growing, as it are these hybrid homeschooling um, 
groups, centers, and schools that focus on classical education. Do you see that as well, that there is this upsurge in interest in classical learning? Oh, absolutely. And I think that what it reflects is that this pattern of classical education works. And it works because it's faithful to the developmental stages of a child's brain. And it works because those developmental stages aren't just academic, they're also emotional. You know, elementary kids need sameness and repetition. Middle grade students need challenge and questioning. And high school students need the space to express themselves. So it's just such a beautiful pattern that fits with the way the human develops. Um, and, And I think that the power of that truth is what you see in the popularity of classical education. If that's the beautiful pattern that fits with how children develop, what's the ugly pattern? What are district schools or any schools doing wrong that you see the most, this, you know, this fad is yeah. awful or terrible? What, what are you not liking? Uh, numbers one, two, three, four, and five are reliance on testing to measure student, <laughs> okay. uh, to measure, measure student achievement. Um, teaching means that you not only recognize that children go through this pattern, but you recognize that they go through it at different times. <laughs> you know, kids, kids aren't little robots. Um, some of them, some of them achieve more as the, the earth moves around the sun than others do in that same period. And that is neither a good or a bad thing. It is simply a matter of biology. It's a matter of their physical development. When schools over rely on testing, They inevitably ask students to do things that are developmentally inappropriate. They inevitably ask children too young to analyze and criticize before children actually have the foundation to do so. They ask middle grade students to regurgitate facts in a way that, again, is not appropriate. And they don't ask high school students to do things that are appropriate at all. Yes. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks so much. She is Susan Weisbauer. Those looking for more information about Susan's work can find her easily because you just have to put her name in with a dot com at the end on the web. Susan dot com. Susan, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Welcome back. Time now for our commentary of the week and tweet of the week. I'll start with uh, this from Alina Adams. She uh, runs a a blog called New York School Talk, and her commentary, which I picked, is called An Open Letter to Families Who Don't Believe in School Choice, dash, because they don't realize they already have it. How perfectly framed a title is that, do you think, Carrie? Like the, the families that oppose school choice, guess what? They have it. They're not stuck somewhere that's horrible. You know, they've figured out a way to put their kids in a kind of a better position than maybe they realize. I think this, they don't realize they already have it is a great line. Yeah. I mean, this reminds me, uh, of course, of some of the history of uh, massive, sorry, U.S. compulsory schooling and just uh, one of the key players, of course, Horace Mann from the 19th century um, was instrumental in helping to pass Massachusetts's first compulsory schooling statute in 1852, which was then modeled across the country. Uh, And of course, Horace Mann homeschooled his own children with no intention of sending them to the common schools mandated of others. And so I think that hypocrisy continues to this day in in the modern fight for education freedom. 
Yeah, it seems like more and more there's a new person who is caught, you know, like Elizabeth Warren was, who's caught sending their own kids to private school while they uh, publicly, uh, you know, inveigh against choice. Um, at any rate, so I understand you have a tweet of the week for us. Yeah, I think many of us were really saddened to hear that Clayton Christensen passed away uh, last week. And he is the, was the founder of the Christensen Institute and, of course, most well known for his coining the term disruptive innovation. Um, and so very sad that he passed away in the Christensen Institute posting on January 24th, we are profoundly saddened to announce the passing of our friend and founder, Clayton Christensen. We are better people for knowing him. We're humbled to continue his important work using disruptive innovation to make the world a better place. Till we meet again, dear friend. Well, that's nice. Yeah, I was worried you're going to end us on a down note, but kind of the end of that tweet was not so down. So that wasn't so bad. That's right. And I've actually, um, I'm attending the, the annual Learn Launch conference in Boston, focusing on all kinds of education innovation, um, especially disruptive innovation in education. And so it's, uh, his memory is certainly alive there. What a beautiful segue. Speaking of disruptive innovation, next week on the Learning Curve podcast will be Julie Young of Florida Virtual Schools. This is a an amazingly innovative concept. I can't believe it's not in I would say I can't believe it's not in all of the other 49 states, but the fact is Florida, their students, I think in every state taking courses from Florida Virtual School, for those who don't know, every kid in Florida, can, whether you're a traditional district school student, charter school student, homeschool student, private school student, anyone for free, any child can take a course at Florida Virtual School, and it is, uh, it's an amazing program to hear about, and we'll hear about it more next week from Julie Young. Meanwhile, Carrie McDonald, it's been uh, so much fun to have you on as guest host uh, today. Thank you. It's been great to be with you, Bob. Thanks. All right, everybody. Uh, type in, uh, speaking of hashtags, type in the hashtag learning curve. You know, it's the case. I think sometimes we're learning curve podcasts, some, hashtag learning curve podcast. Other times we're hashtag learning curve. Huh. All right. Try both. That's my recommendation. Uh, but thanks to you for listening to our podcast. And we'll see you next week.